Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicles Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Moira O'Neill and joining me in the studio today are my colleagues on the personal finance team, Leonora Walters and Kate Bealey. We're also delighted to have a special guest on the show. Alan Steele is chairman of Alan Steele Asset Management and he will be helping me make sense of asset allocation and how this should change or not as we get older. We're also going to look at investment trust boards and how proactive they should be in making manager changes. Also, um, you may not have considered investing in bonds via exchange-traded funds, but this is becoming a more interesting area that we'll look at. And we're also going to have a quick look at the performance of F&C Global Smaller Companies Investment Trust. But first, we have a special interview with Sam Morse, who is fund manager of Fidelity European Values, which is a member of the Investors Chronicles Top 100 Funds. Leonora and Kate interviewed him earlier today and investors who are troubled by the Greek crisis and its impact on markets may be surprised to hear what he has to say about value in European companies. This week, um, Greece has been dominating the headlines and you're obviously um, a Europe fund manager. Do you have any exposure to Greece and um, are you concerned at all about any effects it might have on other portfolio holdings? Uh, there are no Greek holdings in the uh, European Values Investment Trust. Um, and uh, generally, uh, events in Greece certainly uh, have effect on you know the sentiment towards Europe. Um, but in reality, the direct impact most of the companies held in the portfolio is relatively small. Um, In terms of uh, the future for Greece, obviously it's a complex situation, Uh, many twists and turns, and we won't really know how things will end up there. Uh, My very um, basic view is that if Greece were to leave the Eurozone, that would certainly cause some uncertainty in Europe, which probably wouldn't be helpful to markets. Uh, or perhaps to the economy in the shorter term. Um, And in addition to that, it would demonstrate that the membership of the Eurozone is reversible. So I think it would probably have a longer-term impact on uh, equity risk premiums in in southern Europe, which again generally wouldn't be helpful for holdings in countries like Spain, Italy, etc. But really the whole point of the portfolio is to focus on companies. It is about bottom-up stock picking and to try and choose those companies which will be able to deliver consistent dividend growth on a three to five year view that in my view are attractively valued. Uh, And to a certain extent, you know, these uh, macro risks um, are diversified um, through, you know, holding a decent uh, portfolio of names in that respect. Um, but before we move on to some kind of more of, a, of the bottom up, I'm just curious as um, obviously another big trend in Europe has been QE and curious as to as to what that's meant for the environment for stock pickers, because obviously QE's really pushed up equities. What does that meant in terms of the opportunities for you? Yeah, I mean, I think, again, um, the impact of QE is uncertain. Uh, as you point out, generally, it appears to be good for asset prices, but the actual impact on the economy, I think, is is more debatable. Um, and um, uh, 
I think it has uh, uh, some impact, uh, in particular, for instance, on financials, where it's difficult for banks in particular to earn money on their deposits. Um, and uh, certainly we've seen that in terms of uh, net interest margins uh, for banks. Um, but uh, I wouldn't say that my starting point is to look for particular stocks that benefit from the effects of QE or vice versa. I really start with the companies and their fundamental outlook and then try to decide how these macro uh, factors such as QE and uh, events in Greece, etc., uh, might affect the portfolio as a whole and try to, in a sense, uh, minimize uh, the uh, impact of these events uh, through diversification. And, I mean, how easy have you been finding it to, to identify those good opportunities but at the right price? I mean, how how are kind of the stocks in terms of being cheap or expensive at the moment? Yeah, I, I think generally uh, stocks in, in Europe are, are expensive. Um, you know... Generally, uh, the stock market cycle is a bit different from the economic cycle. And uh, as Sir John Templeton said, uh, bull markets very much and uh, very often start uh, when people are most pessimistic um, and uh, mature on skepticism and, and then die on euphoria. Uh, and I think it's fair to say that, um, you know, six years or so ago in 2009, during the global financial crisis, everyone was extremely pessimistic about the outlook for companies and stocks. Um, but actually, they're extremely cheap. Uh, since then, obviously, markets have risen a lot. Uh, and gradually, commentators have become more optimistic. Uh, I'll leave you to decide whether they're currently euphoric. Uh, and that's reflected in valuations. Uh, and although valuations in Europe may appear a little bit uh, uh, less exuberant than in the States, uh, I think we're at that stage in the cycle where valuations uh, are high, certainly higher than average, uh, and perhaps even becoming dangerously high. And that is a challenge for, for me as a stock picker. Um, but having said that, I always uh, the fund is always fully invested um, because uh, generally I take the view that the investors have given me the money to invest and you know they can take the decision to, to sell the fund and hold it in cash. Um, and I think it's better just to be clearer with them that that, 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 that is what I'll do. So uh, I am struggling with absolute valuations. Uh, so we have to look to a certain extent for stocks that are relatively attractive, uh, given their dividend uh, prospects. Uh, and I think there are some opportunities there. And, and let's talk a bit about your portfolio, because your top holding is 3i Group, isn't it, currently? Um, and that's a private equity company. So why, why do you like that one so much? Well, my top holding is probably actually a company like Nestle, um, but I think you're probably uh, looking there at uh, a relative or what we might call an active position, i.e. Um, a difference between the, uh, the, the percentage in the portfolio and the percentage that the, that stock represents in the benchmark. Uh, and 3i is certainly uh, close to the top of the list. Um, it's an interesting situation. There's been some management change a couple of years ago. Uh, a chap called Simon Burrows, uh, who had a background as an investment banker, became the new chief executive, and I think has done some very sensible things in terms of uh, reducing the cost base of the business, uh, in terms of reducing the number of holdings within their uh, ec uh, portfolio, um, and um, really focusing on the quality of those investments as well. 
Um, he's also reduced the uh, financial leverage of the company um, to leave it uh, with a little bit of powder dry in the event that things were to down, uh, turn down. Um, so I think that's still a very attractive and interesting story. And it's interesting that actually of, uh, of my sort of top 10 active holdings in the fund, um, about six currently are financials. And um, although the fund is quite broadly diversified by sector and it's not massively overweight financials, I think there are some really good opportunities in the financial sector um, because uh, it is still and has been relatively unloved. Uh, uh, given various challenges, etc. And so I think we can still find companies that we think uh, on a three to five year view will show very attractive dividend growth from really uh, quite an interesting level of uh, dividend yield. And I mean, what would be examples of... Uh, well, I think a good example there would be Intesa mm-hmm. San Paolo, uh, which is uh, an Italian bank. Um, and, um, you know, I think this, uh, it's it's a conservatively managed bank. It's... Ninety percent focused on on Italy, not a GC fee. Um, and again, it's really about an internal turnaround under new management uh, who are looking to take some cost out and also improve the growth of the business through uh, growth in their asset management uh, business. Um, but also, you know, it will benefit from changes in the external environment, in particular into the industry structure in Italy, uh, which was dominated for many years by sort of a fragmentation due to a large number of sort of local mutual banks. Uh, and you may have seen recently in Italy there's been some uh, legal changes, which means that uh, these popolari banks uh, will have to become joint stock holding companies, which is likely to lead to a lot of consolidation. And we think that will improve the profitability of the uh, Italian banking system. There's also been some legal changes recently in respect of uh, non-performing loans. And uh, so we think the industry structure is improving. We think the Italian economy is improving a little bit. We think there's a good internal turnaround situation at Intesa. And uh, a lot of their business plan really revolves around paying out more in dividends and um, growing the dividends from quite an attractive level. The yield's around 4% for next year. We think that will grow to as much as 7 or 8% in two or three years' time. And on the flip side to that, um, two of the, the top constituents in the index you follow, and that's the FTSE Europe XUK, Novartis and Bayer, but you don't hold any of those stocks, is that correct? That is correct. Um, I mean, I do pay attention to the benchmark in terms of running this fund, and that's a slight differentiator perhaps from other funds. It is a mainstream approach. And uh, But having said that, if I don't like a stock, uh, I won't hold it in the portfolio, irrelevant of the size of the fund in the benchmark. And obviously Novartis, as you say, is, 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 is one of the biggest companies in Europe. So that is quite a big underweight position. Uh, I think Novartis is a fine company. It meets the criteria that I look for when investing in companies. Uh, it has a dividend. It's growing the dividend. Uh, it's cash generative. Uh, it has a strong balance sheet. Um, but uh, the one issue I have is that I think it is still facing uh, quite a lot of patent expires over the next three to five years uh, in the shorter term Gleevec. Uh, and then it's got two or three other important drugs that are going off patent around 2019 and 2020. And I think this will prove to be quite a headwind for them in terms of growing their earnings and dividends uh, looking forwards. And the stock has enjoyed 
quite a re-rating, so it's not particularly uh, cheap relative to other pharmaceutical companies in Europe. Uh, and I think I can uh, find uh, better opportunities within the sector um, uh, for, for the fund. So Roche, Novo Nordisk and Sanofi are three big holdings in the fund. And to be quite frank, I prefer those from the point of view of dividend yield and dividend growth on a three to five year view. Okay, now, obviously, you're a big fan of Nestle, aren't you? Um, and that derives a, a large chunk of its earnings from emerging markets. Are you conscious of looking for companies which derive a big portion of their revenue overseas? Again, I try, I try to run the fund on a diversified basis to try and uh, limit or dampen down the risk of exposure to various macro factors or external changes such as you know emerging markets, etc. So I suspect that um, given that diversification, the portfolio is fairly broadly balanced uh, relative to the benchmark in terms of uh, exposure to emerging markets or exposure to international sales. Um, I do like Nestle uh, as as an investment. Um, again, you know the dividend yield is around three percent. Uh, they've got a fantastic long term track record of growing the dividend. The dividends paid in Swiss franc, as you will know, uh, which generally tends to appreciate uh, versus the euro. Um, I think that's an attractive combination. It's got a strong balance sheet. It generates cash. Uh, and I think the fundamentals in the longer term are positive, uh, particularly because the company, which has done a very good job over the longer term of growing its sales and its margins, is now also very much focused on uh, the third leg, I return on capital. Uh, and um, I think that that's now you know, going to come through in terms of more active portfolio management. Um, and uh, more of a focus on uh, the return that they're getting on the, the, the very strong investment they're making in the business. Um, there is quite a big emerging market exposure in the company, um, but um, uh, generally, and I think you know, generally things have become tougher externally in the emerging markets, um, but also we are seeing a lot more competition from uh, other um, emerging market players. So that is an issue that I've got to keep an eye on. Um, but generally, Nestle seems to be weathering that storm reasonably well and continuing to grow its uh, dividends at an attractive rate. Okay. Now, at your last AGM in December, shareholders voted to allow up to 20% of the company's assets to be invested in the UK. And that's up from 5%, wasn't it? Now, why was that change made? And have you made more investments in the UK as a result? Yeah, I'd just like to clarify that a little bit. I mean, the, the permission to invest up to 20% uh, is in UK-listed names and not necessarily in the UK economy. And as you all know, you know, the UK stock market has become quite global. And a lot of those UK companies maybe do uh, a big proportion of their business in continental Europe, uh, a bit like 3i. Um, so I don't think it should be seen as taking this fund away from primarily being focused in, on investments in, in continental Europe. And secondly, what we really did actually was remove a rather artificial and anachronistic cap on UK listed names at 5%. So the fund always had the freedom to invest up to 20% off benchmark in countries outside the benchmark. Uh, and that remains the case. So it's very unlikely the UK listed names will become 20% of the benchmark. Um, because you know I want to use that flexibility or freedom to invest in in other countries that are outside the benchmark um, so uh, this will remain very much a continental European fund 
Um, but having said that, um, there are certain situations, for instance, Royal Dutch Shell, where there's a Dutch listing and a UK listing. And uh, uh, traditionally, the UK listing has been more expensive than the Dutch listing. So it's made sense to hold the Dutch listed shares. Um, but that's actually changed quite recently, partly as a result of the BG deal. So now the UK listed shares are pretty much on a par with the Dutch listed shares and if they were to come that much cheaper than the Dutch listed shares and I'd like to have that flexibility to shift my holding from one into the other which would probably take me over the 5% you know artificial limit so that's one reason for allowing greater flexibility and secondly you know our research department is organized on a pan-european basis and quite often you and analysts will come up to me and say look sam you own x stock in in europe that's listed in europe but our you know this business is very similar in terms of where it does its business etc i think it's a much more attractive candidate and i'd rather you owned it but it happens to be listed in the uk so we're not changing the spirit of the fund in terms of, you know, it, this is a fund all about investing into continental Europe, um, but we are giving ourselves a little bit more flexibility in terms of investing in UK-listed names. Okay, and um, and at the same meeting, um, you, or it, it was kind of decided that you would be able to use a slightly wider range of derivatives as well, wasn't it? And what does that mean? Yes, I mean... It's important to understand we were already using derivatives uh, in the investment trust um, for gearing purposes. So uh, for some time we've been using uh, CFDs or contracts for differences, um, going long these effectively to uh, increase the gearing in the fund. Um, so, uh, you know, the, the support infrastructure, the oversight, etc., has all been tested while we've been doing that. And uh, Fidelity generally has, building up, has been building up quite a lot of resources in this area over the years. So we now have analysts who, you know, specifically looking at shorting opportunities. Um, and we have, you know, a team looking at derivatives and, uh, um, you know, with uh, good infrastructure on oversight and settlement, etc. So a, a number of other funds at Fidelity have been uh, using derivatives more broadly for many years. Uh, and I felt that uh, it was important for the holders of the trust to benefit from these changes too. So again, it's about flexibility. We now have a bit more flexibility, for instance, uh, if necessary, to short single stock names by going short CFDs. Um, I could look to magnify my style a little bit by um, increasing the investments in the stocks I hold and then uh, effectively uh, shorting the benchmark through index futures. So again, it's just really more uh, tools in the kit bag to try and continue uh, the longer term outperformance of the trust um, uh, relative to the benchmark. And and yeah, we should talk about that performance. Um, now you've obviously outperformed the benchmark over kind of one, three, um, five years at least. Um, and then in the last year, you've actually really jumped up the rankings a lot, both in terms of performance relative to the benchmark and to your peers. Why, why do you think that is? I mean, I really focus on performance relative to the benchmark because this, you know, my whole approach being a mainstream approach and a diversified approach is about beating the benchmark fairly consistently year to year every year such that over time um, it develops into you know a, a really quite a significant uh, gap with the benchmark and hopefully as a result with peers 
Um, I don't focus too much on what peers are doing. I think some of them are doing very different things in terms of gearing or in terms of um, the style in which they're managing the assets. But I want people to buy the fund and hold it. Um, and I think this approach of steadily outperforming the benchmark, um, you know, is is more likely to result in that rather than, uh, you know, perhaps a more aggressive approach. Um, so, um, you know, I think that's, uh, that's really, uh, what I've been focusing on and, you know, I mean, obviously it comes and goes, uh, from year to year. Um, but, uh, generally over time and especially with the, uh, extra tools I have at my disposal that we just discussed and given the very, very strong support that I get from the, uh, Fidelity research effort. Um, you know, I think, um, uh, you know, we certainly feel confident that we can continue this uh, longer term outperformance. Okay, great. And just finally, the, the dividend growth has also been quite impressive over the long term. What What is your attitude to dividends? Are you committed to growing it or um, maintaining it or, or what's the approach? Yeah, the dividend on the trust itself um really is uh, obviously paid in sterling. So uh, whereas I receive most of my dividends in euros or in other currencies, so uh, the amount of dividend we can pay can be affected by um, factors that are outside uh, anyone's control, i.e. you know, changes in exchange rate. So the weaker euro has been having an impact then? Uh, well, the weaker euro could have an impact uh, on the dividend, um, but uh, offsetting that uh, are a few factors. I mean, obviously, the um, rate of underlying rate of growth in dividends um, from the companies in which I invest in generally um, is pretty good uh, and should generally over time be superior to the market rate of growth. Uh, so that would be one offsetting factor. Um, and, you know, there are a number of other factors to do with costs and interest rates, etc. Uh, and also, ultimately, you know, as you will know, an investment trust doesn't have to pay out uh, all its earnings uh, in one year in dividends. So sometimes over time, a, 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 a reserve does build up, um, which can be utilized in, in the event of, you know, extreme foreign exchange volatility, etc. But I think the basic aim of the trust is to pay out most of the uh, income in dividends. We do take charges from income rather than from capital. So again, that slightly reduces the rate of dividend you get on the trust. Um, but I think over time, um, you know, obviously there may be year to year volatility, but over time, the dividend of the fund should reflect what I'm doing in the portfolio in terms of my strategy, I it should grow. Great. Well, I think that's um, probably about all we have time for. So thank you very much, Sam. Brilliant. Thank you. Well, that was a fascinating interview. In this week's magazine, I wrote in my smart money column that there's plenty of evidence that constant monitoring of investment news will raise your blood pressure. Um, sharp moves in stock markets, as we have seen this week as the Greek crisis unfolds, are closely correlated with a rise in heart attacks, according to some academic research. So instead, we've suggested that we, uh, investors take some time away from monitoring the news flow and focus on getting the basics of investing right. And one of the most important things to get right is asset allocation. That's the right balance in your portfolio between equities, bonds, property, commodities and cash. 
And um, many um, advisors suggest that this, this asset allocation should change as you go through different life changes and different things happen to you and your, and your risk profile changes. Now, this week's Portfolio Clinic features an investor who is thinking about his asset allocation. He's reached the grand age of 87 and he's worried that his equity-focused portfolio should be more conservatively invested. Now, Alan... Do you think we should be um, investing more cautiously as we get older? I mean, I know that's a pretty broad question, but, um, you know, the, the traditional advice is, is that you should um, have like, fewer equities as you get older. What's your view? Well, it's a really tough one. That, um, you know, I've been doing this for a very long time, 42 years, um, mm-hmm. and I've seen all sorts of things happening. I've seen all sorts of ends of the world and all sorts of theories. And this, is a, this, is, this theory tends to assume, I think, that progress is linear, you know, that um, it's on a nice line. So at this point, you take a lot of risk, and as then you get older, because of the linear progress, you start taking less risk. But, but progress isn't like that, and markets aren't like that, and the world's not like that. The world goes in cycles, you know. I mean, there are four seasons. Unless you're in Scotland, there's only one, um, <laughs> which is winter. Um, but there are four seasons, and, and it's the same in business cycles and economic cycles. So... You know, if you actually then assumed uh, in 2000, if, if you'd got to 2009 and we're actually c- going further and further and down into caution and you'd got to the bottom of caution and you sat and thought, well, I'll just put it in cash or absolute return, then you would have missed this bull market. And this has been a very strong bull market. So I don't think it's as simple as that. And it also comes down to personal taste as well or, or feelings. And, you know, like if you are the kind of person who... When they when they hear that the stock market's fallen by a record amount of 1.2 percent or something, has feels like you've got a heart attack coming on. Then you shouldn't be in equities. I mean, a lot of people now now talking about longer timescales for investment. I mean, if you've accumulated a lot of assets over your lifetime, you're not necessarily going to use them. You're going to want to pass them on to your family. Doesn't that extend your investment timescale and the and the amount of risk you can take because you're sort of passing it on to your children? Yeah. But, yeah. but there is also one thing that uh, our reader has not touched on, and that is that he's he's trying to make you know he's trying to create wealth and make a wee bit more, and he's concerned about is he in the right sectors and is he in the right diversification. And right now he's sitting looking at an inheritance tax bill of about three hundred and twenty thousand pounds. Oh dear, that's that's very steep. Yes. So it's not just a, I think it's I think people have got to actually say. Start step back. You're right. Step back. Look at the big picture and say, well, you know, what if I die? Uh, you mm-hmm. know, if Fred dies, then is Mrs. Fred as comfortable as he's been with all this playing around with stocks and shares and ices and and you know he's clearly comfortable or has been. But what's her? What's she like? Because research shows that most widows are confused, vulnerable, and they they often just turn everything into cash. So, I mean, that in that sense, he might be better off getting a simpler structure to his portfolio that's yeah. much more easy to manage. Yeah, yes. absolutely. But I think also he should, I know I'm biased in this, although I'm independent, he really should go and find somebody he can trust who looks at all of these pictures and puts it together and then puts something in there that makes a lot of sense. Or, or he could line someone up for, for after he's gone, I suppose, to help his widow, uh, potential widow out. Uh, yeah, yeah. But, <laughs> but, but ladies like relationships. Uh. They like to be comfortable 
and, and feel comfortable with the person that's going to do that. Not, not to suddenly introduce them after Fred's gone. Mm-hmm. Makes more sense for her to have that relationship now and start to understand what risk is and how she understands risk and feels comfortable. I think it's yeah. really important. Yeah, so it's sort of a joint, joint decision and they've got to think that through. Absolutely. Yeah. Very Completely. sensible advice. Thanks, Alan. Um, also in this week's magazine, we take a look at investment trusts and the independent boards that can appoint or dismiss the trust's fund manager. And Leonora Walters has been looking into how proactive boards have been in relation to changing managers when performance is poor. Um, Leonora, are boards doing their job or is there room for improvement? What do you reckon? Well, I think there's mixed opinions. Um, The Association of Investment Companies reports there's been quite a high manager turnover over the last 18 months. But uh, then some analysts actually think that boards still aren't doing enough and that's not necessarily just relating to manager change. Um, For example... um, Alan Bailey of Canical Genuity feels that um, a lot of boards aren't doing enough share buyback, share issues um, on behalf of investors or, uh, you know, using gearing, taking on debt to, um, Im- you know, improve returns potentially. Um, but what some other analyst investors I spoke to report um they, they say there's actually been an improvement in the last few years. Um, so to quote one of them, while some uh, boards are still asleep at the wheel, uh, they overall they're better than they used to be. Um, Alan, um, many, many people say that the company structure of an investment trust with its independent board is an advantage over open-ended funds um, that don't have boards. Do, do you agree? Do you think there's any sense in that? Uh, in theory, yeah, it mm-hmm. sounds good. Um, but so did uh, RBS had an independent board. Um, <laughs> the banks had independent boards, non-execs and so on. And look what happened there. Uh, yeah, in theory, it sounds right. But, you know, I've well, in the time I've been around, um, and, and once upon a time, not that terribly long ago, I was approached to see if I wanted to be on a board. The people who run these boards are not doing it for the money. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, that's They're important. doing it with some money, aren't they? Well, <laughs> they, they get, get paid. Well, well, they get something like, on average, between fifteen and twenty thousand a year um, to turn up uh, at four or more board meetings and be accountable. And under the new laws, they are directors, and that's an owner's responsibility. So I don't think they're doing it for the money. They might be doing it for the kudos. And and I think a lot of boards are a bit like old clubs. Um, and and I don't think they have been active enough or proactive enough. Frankly, well, I think there's lots of people. Twenty thousand pounds for four meetings a year might, might sound like uh, decent money, um, but I mean, <laughs> it, I mean, if, 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 it depends how hard you're expected to work for that. I suppose. Well, yeah. yeah, they've they've got a lot of responsibility. They have, you know, they get phone calls and so on. Um, I mean, their job is to represent the shareholders. Mm-hmm. I think I think they've forgotten that. I think their job is to. I think if you have a board that tends to stick together for a long time, what happens is you get really friendly with the manager. He becomes one of the one of the chaps, and you know, old Fred. You you know, you well, I shouldn't say Fred because that's the reader. But <laughs> you know, you say, oh well, John. You know, he's had a rough time, but he's one of the boys and things like that. And I actually think that, that complacency has come in. I really do. Mm-hmm. Just have to look at Alliance Trust. 
Yeah, I mean that that's a that's a trust uh, for our, for our listeners who don't know that that, that uh, hasn't hasn't performed particularly well and came under attack from an activist investor um, earlier this year, and allegedly spent three million pounds defending it. Yeah, <laughs> um, well, we're still waiting to see if performance will turn around with that trust, aren't we? Um, but I mean, going back to what you were saying about. Um, the boards themselves and um, you know, this, this additional independence, you, you feel that then then they're not really doing their job. But where, where they actually hold money in the trust um, themselves, the, the board directors, I mean, do you think do you think that has an effect? I mean, if you're actually invested, because some of them aren't at all, are they? They just turn up to the meetings. Yeah, but even I know um, one or two who are directors of um, investment trusts and they do have significant holdings. Um, but these significant holdings tend to be a small percentage of their overall wealth. Uh, so I don't think it. I honestly don't think it makes a lot of difference. Yeah. Really. Okay. Um, well, thanks very much for your thoughts, Alan, on that. And and now we're going to look for, look at something completely different. That's um, exchange traded funds. They're passive investments that are traded on the stock market. And we're going to look at exchange traded funds that invest in bonds. Um, these have actually been growing in popularity this year, um, but we're not really sure that investors have enough choice in the area. And Kate Bearley has been investigating. Kate, what have you found? Yeah, I mean, that, that is what I found, really, that this seems to be an area of undersupply. And, and that seems to be what everyone in the industry is saying. I mean, when it comes to equities, there are there are tons of ETFs and they seem to kind of mushroom by the day. Um and the ETF market kind of has grown up around equities, but it's just not as popular when it comes to fixed income, which is strange because a lot of people say that, in fact, ETFs would, would be good for, for fixed income. And, and in fact, they're so popular generally that it's surprising almost that, that there hasn't been more development here. Um, and particularly because since the start of the year, kind of when QE was announced, um, there was this obvious kind of flow into bonds across the whole market. And um, a lot of ETF providers say that they had record interest in um, in bond ETFs um, across the board. Um, now, that's obviously turned around a bit in, in May with the big kind of bond sell-off. But it's clear that, that people want these products and um, that there is a bit of a shortage. Um, I mean, Alan... Looking at the bond sector, should we be investing in bonds at all? How are you? How are you? Are you getting exposure for your clients in bonds, and how how are you doing that within the portfolios? Um, but bonds, if we're talking about um, sovereign bonds in the main, uh, fixed income bonds, they've been in a bull market since what 1981, mm -hmm. um, and bull markets tend to turn into bear markets. <laughs> Um, now, I know that a lot of people have been expecting a bear market to happen for some time, uh, and obviously they have, it hasn't turned into that bear route that everybody expected. The funny thing is, my experience tells me that when people stop talking about it and say, ah, oh, well, it's not going to happen and it's going to be a plateau, that's the time for a sharp exit. Because I don't think bonds make a lot of sense at all right now. I really don't see inflation coming through anywhere. And I don't see, but I see interest rates at some point going up. And they are going to go up in the US probably in September, and they're going to go up in the UK. And it will be slight, and it will be very slow. But at some point, we're, go, we, we're, in, we're in waters at the moment that we haven't seen since the early 50s in terms of low interest rates. Low interest rates ain't going to continue. And when they start rising, bonds are going to get 
a bit of a pasting. And I actually think the ETFs are going to be pretty... If you've got a bond ETF, who's on the other side of the deal when everybody rushes for the exit? Mm, that, is, that is true. And, and also that's a kind of key point, actually, I think, with, with bond ETFs is that they're they're very specific, unlike something like a strategic bond fund where the manager might move around between long, short duration and Correct. different kind of bonds. Here you would have to you have to be very specific about what kind of bond you're taking yeah. exposed to. So that is a big risk there. Well, I'm only, I've only been doing this for 42 years and I still don't uh, understand ETFs. <laughs> I think we have to congratulate you there, Alan, on your 40 years in business, don't we, with your firm? That was yesterday. Oh, right. Well, yeah. well um, yeah, I hope you're celebrating in style. Yes, well, we have a bit of a hangover this morning. <laughs> oh, do you? Don't well, want me very... thinking about bonds. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, back to specific investments. Um, this week, um, we had a look at FNC Global Smaller Companies, which is another member of the Investors Chronicles Top 100 Funds. Uh, Leonora, you took a look at this one and how it's been performing. What's the What's the picture? Uh, it's really good, actually. Um, I mean, we include the fund in our IC Top 100 Funds for reasons, including its strong performance. Um, and this continues. It beats its sector average and the MSCI World UK X Small Cap Index over one, three and five years. And its last financial year was good too, um, both its net asset value and its share price total return uh, beat its benchmark. Um, now, there were a number of reasons um, why it did well. Um, and although it's a global fund, um, some of the interesting things that went on and that drove performance actually happened in the UK segment of the portfolio. Um, the UK segment of the portfolio delivered 13.4% against 6.2% for the numerous UK smaller companies index. Um, and one of the reasons was takeovers. The um, investment trust um, in its last financial year had nine holdings taken over. Um, so it largely did well out of that because most of these um, holdings were taken over at a premium to what the trust bought them. Um, an exception was um, Salamander Energy, which is an oil company. Um, and obviously because of the fall in the oil price at the moment, oil companies can't really negotiate prices. Um, but other than that, it was quite, um, yeah, it was a profitable uh, time for trust in terms of takeovers. Um, they've actually rejigged the UK portfolio a bit about as well. Um, and reasons for this include the manager added to the UK weighting uh, because he thinks the UK will perform better in relation to global markets in the year ahead. Uh, another reason was um, they found it um, easy to identify new investment opportunities, largely as a result of um, lots of IPOs. Um, and um, some of the ones invested in include um, Fever Tree Drinks. Now, this is a company that supplies mixers uh, to restaurants and the catering industry, um, not just in the UK, um, across the world as well. And its managers see a lot of potential growth in um, this share, uh, of which the uh, share price has already um, increased since its launch. 
Well, there's lots of positive things to, to look at there. I mean, Alan, in terms of, um, I mean, is it, is it a good time for smaller companies, um, do you reckon? I mean, you, you don't like bonds, but, um, you know, in the equity market, um, lots of people have been talking about going for the, the, the large, um, big um, defensive stocks with good dividends. I mean, should you be balancing that out with some smaller companies in your portfolio as well? Absolutely. I, I, I came across a wonderful description of FTSE stocks. Somebody said investing in FTSE stocks, especially the big ones, is like driving on an unfamiliar road going forwards by only looking in the rearview mirror. Now, if you're going to, because it's, it's the past, these, peop, these companies have got to the size they are because of the past. Small companies, I love small companies. I think they are undervalued. Um, the FNC Global Small Company Fund's done really well. It's got 40% in the U.S. as well, by the way, mm-hmm. and a couple of nice Japan holdings. But small companies, if you look historically at, at the small company market and you're prepared to be patient, you outperform the main indices every 10 years. And yet they have been, they've gone through a little ropey phase. Um, and I like, I like the whole idea of small caps, and I don't see them as being over risk, uh, too much risk at the moment because they're undervalued. And the, the world is, is um, and you look at all the technological changes that are going on, and if you look at the people like Apple and Google buying up the best small companies they can get their hands on, it's a great market. I think it's a wonderful market. And there are some really good managers. Dan Nichols is a good manager at Old Mutual in the small cap arena. Harry Nimmo um, at uh, Standard Life takes a different view, but he's got a great record. I think this is a great time to be buying small caps. Okay, well, that's a nice positive note to end on. Thanks very much. Um, um, so thank, that's a thanks to our special guest, Alan Steele of Alan Steele Asset Management and to uh, Sam Morse of Fidelity European Values. And thank you also to my colleagues, Leonora and Kate at the Investors Chronicle. You can read more about asset allocation, investment trust boards and bond ETFs in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle. Thank you for listening. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.